De la patrulla de Minos de California. Weather headlines for today, yes. Welcome to the Revenue Generator Podcast. An I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, you'll hear how industry leaders integrate sales, marketing, product, and customer success into a single business unit with a common goal of optimizing their revenue cycle. We'll unearth how innovators integrate data, technology, people, and processes to expedite demand generation and increase recurring revenue. Sit back, tune in, and get ready to meet a member of the Revenue Generation. Here's the host of the Revenue Generator podcast, the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. Welcome to the Revenue Generator podcast, where we members of the Revenue Generation share solutions for how you can integrate your business to optimize revenue. I'm your host and the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. And today we're going to talk about the B2B sales battle, automation versus personalization. Joining us is Dan Englander, who is the founder and CEO of Sales Schema, which is a fractional new business team for marketing agencies and B2B service companies. Sales Schema helps B2B companies customize their sales and marketing processes so they can win big fish clients. So far this week, Dan and I talked about finding balance between automated and personalized sales. We actually described it in terms of the West Side story. And today we're gonna wrap up our conversation by talking about relationship sales at scale. Okay, here's my conversation with Dan Englander, the founder and CEO at Sales Schema. Dan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. So when you were on yesterday, I mentioned a couple of things. One, the fact that you're a founder, it's incredibly impressive. Number two, that you've written a book. So tell us about the book. What's the topic? Walk us through why you would tackle something like this, and then maybe give us a little bit of lead into how people would grab the book and find it. Yeah, thanks so much for that. So it's called Relationship Sales to Scale, How to Find Your Virtual Tribe and Reliably Grow Your Professional Service Firm. It's called Professional Services because that's where a lot of these lessons are learned, but we've also worked with B2B tech. We've worked with you know B2B services across the board. So any like complex B2B selling situation is kind of what this is based on. And with that in mind, you know, to frame it out a little bit, I've been in the sales world for a while. First, I was on the account side at an agency and then led new business for a number of years for Creative House. And I used to go to these like network working events every morning and there would always be people trading leads. It was kind of like one of these, it wasn't BNI, but it was like that. And it would be like me selling animated video services because we did startup tech videos and we did commercial work. And then there, there were other people that sold weird things like agencies that did weird things and consultants. And then there would be these like this group of real estate people, like a broker and a lawyer and somebody else. And they would make like 90% of the money in the group because they had this like little ecosystem and they all knew each other and they all traded leads and we would like rarely close business. And, you know, maybe I sucked, but I think, I think it was bigger than that. I think there were other people that, that couldn't either. And that was because the internet and the, the, the leverage that you could get through, through the data and sort of finding your tribe online weren't really in full force at that time. This would have been 2011 and 2012. There were some things you could do, but it wasn't like it is now. But I still remember that. I remember kind of like the promise of that. And then, you know, over time, um, I started Sales Schema, which is, you know, basically in a nutshell, a an outsourced BDR team focusing on B2B services. We get meetings for clients. And we tried doing this cold outreach game in the early days, and it just it just didn't really work. 
and it will work to some degree and then it started declining, I should say, effectiveness, right? And we, we tried everything under the sun for clients that really had a good track record. And then we realized that, you know, there's just so much competition for digital services for businesses that you can start from a laptop with an internet connection, which is now describing a pretty big chunk of the economy that we moved to this model that we call relationship sales at scale. Right. And what that means is it's kind of like combining old school with new school. And it's, it's really not on one hand, nothing new. And it got inspired by, by the fact that we would talk to every client, you know, and sometimes in agencies that have been around since like the eighties or whatever. And they would say, Hey, we get 99% of our business from referrals. And then people like me would yell at them and say, that's not, that's not sustainable. You have to go do this, do that. How do you scale that? Yeah. How do you scale that? Right. How many times have you heard that? But the fact is they were, they were largely right. The issue was they just didn't do it very deliberately and they weren't, they didn't know how to use this tool of the internet and the data and all the stuff from that to make it work. So sort of what this book is, is like just putting to words the thing that the best old school salespeople have done for a long time and just kind of adding some, some rocket power and bells and whistles to it. And it's really combining, you know, the old school with the new. And what that means is using this relational approach, using mutual connections between people and doing it in a way so that you're sending out dozens of pieces of outreach each day so that you're getting you know, handfuls of meetings each week and closing hopefully lots and lots of business. So that's, that's kind of the promise of the book anyway. Let's make this translation happen for listeners, right? So I have this picture in my head, Dan, it's very vivid. I've got this group of very, very diverse sellers, if you will, and they've got business cards. So I've got business cards in my head. They've got like stacks of business. And they're like, this guy, this guy needs a horse. Oh, I'm selling horses, right? This type of thing. Oh my God, literally horse trading, right? So how do you translate? Because that image is vivid, but it also, you know, it's, it's pretty effective, right? You've got people, they're not just handing business cards off, but they're like, my experience with this person, I came across them, they have this need, I thought of you, here you go, right? So how do you translate people in a room over drinks, and I'm thinking nasty cigarette smoke, probably, again, back to that visual. How do you translate that into something that is now digital, right? That front door, how do you translate that for folks making that shift? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the main thing is, or it's a couple things actually, being very open and honest with what with what you want, and being specific so that it's easy for people to help you. Those those are kind of the two things that we've seen. So, for example, you know, one campaign that as I talk about in the book and that we've often run for clients is what we call relationship mapping, where you know we might say, you know, hypothetically, let's say, you know, Doug, you're looking to reach the 5,000, you know, enterprise tech businesses and funded startups or whatever. So you make this list, you make this list of accounts. Meanwhile, you have this massive Rolodex you've developed over the years in Silicon Valley. You know that there's there's gold in the hills, but you you don't have the time or, or wherewithal to find it. So then what we might do is say, okay, Doug, we want you to highlight everybody that you know, that you that you actually know, you know, from your LinkedIn. There's a bunch of ways to get that data, but let's say it's on LinkedIn, and that you would feel feel comfortable reconnecting with to get you know, referred. So you might omit current clients. You might omit your high school roommate who you, you don't want to have an awkward conversation with or, so, or college roommate, I should say, and so on. And then from there, the third thing is doing an outreach campaign to your network and saying, Hey, I'm working on some BD initiatives. You know, can you help me out? And then you might be getting on calls with those people and saying, I know, by the way, I saw, you know, these three people, you CMO of IBM to others. Do you actually know them? And, you know, would you, would you be willing to help me out? So this, it is more legwork, right? And it does take a little longer, but 
it's essentially combining all that sort of like networking and you know horse training the, the business card swap game in, in a very into a very deliberate campaign right that might last over the course of a few months and there's not really any way to a get that market intelligence that you're going to get from talking to your network and being and being specific and also that level of trust when you actually do get referred you know you're just going to move mountains with it so you know, you compare that to a lot of these companies that are like we have the secret sauce we have the special signals insight, and we know how this company is going to make a decision. It's like, you really think that through, how does that work? You know, if you think about just in any company, there's, there's chaos at all times, there's politics, there's decision-making between people that changes every five minutes, like the ocean, you know, one person makes the decision once people leave, especially now people get quit or get fired. And it's like, whatever data there is, it's, it's lives, it lives in the past. So I'm not saying that there, that there isn't any usefulness to that, or that there, there aren't signals you can get, but really the, the best one, the best bang for your buck is like getting intelligence from somebody that is there, you know, in the company and opening that door. So that's, that's a lot of the, the philosophy going into the book basically that makes a ton of sense and yeah you're right i mean the speed of business is yeeing right how quickly things do change and the internal politics shifting these things are all you know a big factor of how we think about b2b selling but i have to ask dan is probably this model breaks down probably a wee bit when we're starting to get to lower price points right this feels like a model that makes sense and again we talked yesterday about personalization versus automation so this is probably something that becomes more and more reasonable or more efficacious the bigger the deal sizes are. So I'm going to assume that book really kind of points to that, the idea that you know there's an ROI for everything, as you said yesterday. But when you're getting into this level of personalization and account mapping, that's work, right? So just would guess that we're looking at bigger deal sizes. Yeah, and I, I probably should have framed that out. And that is the beginning of the book, the, who this book is for, is, is a relatively big deal size. I think there, there's probably a range, but probably at the floor, you know, our clients have been mid five figure average deal size up to, you know, the sky eight figures or, or whatever. So that's where it is worth doing that. And I think that increasingly it's it's the only way you know to actually come in with that level of trust and to spend your time well as opposed to going in cold and trying to play this this painting by numbers game right well and to make a plug for you know i'm going to double back on myself a little bit here dan i'm going to make a plug for thinking about this maybe at slightly lower asps especially for those in the SaaS business because ultimately we're talking about is creating a relationship hopefully that's lasting for a while so that 25 or 35K deal, which seems small, that's actually a 100K plus deal. And by the way, if you're doing well, meaning you've gotten to the point where you've established a relationship as opposed to closing a deal early on, if you've got that account map and you understand you know, really effectively what the dynamics are of that account, that's a running start. Also understanding, by the way, they're going to change 15 minutes later, but at least we have that start heading in. Yeah, exactly. And probably with that in mind, like lifetime value is a better, a better metric for that. And that could play out a lot of different ways, depending on, on context and vertical stuff. Yeah. So Dan, you also spend a lot of time with clients. And I think that that gives you this view in the world that a lot of us that sit in house don't have. Right. And so typically when somebody goes to the effort of writing a book, it's because they've discovered an acute pain point. And so with your clients, you know, are you discovering that they're waking up to this challenge or is this book a clarion call to say, hey, guys, you've really got to understand and girls really understand you're facing this challenge? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think it's a little bit it's a little bit of both. I think that a lot of the times we're working with clients that have 
gotten away from referrals and personal networks and they, they, they know that that's not enough anymore. And then there's a lot of this wheel spinning, right. And they've tried tech products. They've hired Legion companies, they've hired salespeople and it hasn't usually worked. And usually the cause is partially on the fact that these solutions aren't really good for a consultative sales process where your audience, your TAM isn't unlimited, like in the consumer world. And also the fact that they just don't know. And they're not really, they haven't gotten used to developing the right sales habits. On the other hand, with another segment of our market, like when we're working with existing sales teams and that kind of thing, I think that the traditional you know, sales team sales pod is a little bit flawed. Now I think that we're moving past that a little bit, which so to frame that out for those that don't know, I think that the classic sales pod, and I'm not saying it's broken. I'm not saying it's dead. It doesn't work for anybody. It's okay. If it is, <laughs> Yeah, I hate when people say that because it's working for somebody, but it's the classic BDR model, right? You hire the BDR, the BDR gets meetings for the account executive, the account executive brings in the account manager, the specialist or whatever. I think the issue with that is that it's it's hard because the competition for attention has gone up and the barrier to getting that first meeting has gone up. The idea that the BDR is going to be the one to break down that wall is becoming more and more unrealistic. The other thing is just finding the right skill sets and making all these pieces come together it can be tough right because you're you're dealing with when, when you say the word sales people are like oh yeah that's somebody that closes deals at a you know at a car lot but it's not it's it's like five different skill sets it's the creativity it's the systems thinking of lists and the ops side and all these different things it's you know hustle it's uh, people skills and all the stuff we know so i think it's tough to find that in one person and it's pretty tough to build in house unless you have a lot of resources and time so that's that's been our hopefully our value prop you know here in sales schema yeah well i got to say some of the best most talented project managers i've come across in my career have been salespeople especially for enterprise sales and you nailed it you're talking about a lot of different skills that are necessary but i also talking about coordinating across your own product team, your own tech team. And it, by the way, their IT organization, InfoSec, you've got legal, right? Like it's a lot to pull off. But you said something a moment ago that scared me just a little bit. And that is this idea that, you know, systems thinking and team-based thinking when it comes to opening up these larger accounts, we're asking too much of the BDRs. And the first thing I thought about when I saw the title to the book was, yeah, the key that Dan's going to talk to me about is leaning into the BDR organization to help you scale. In other words, the salespeople, the superior project managers on the team are way too busy managing their project. In other words, this, the deal cycles. Let's outsource this to the BDR organization. It sounds like you're saying, oh, gosh, we might be leaning too hard into that. So what's the counter answer to that challenge? Yeah. And by the way, I'm not saying don't use BDRs. I'm not saying just hire us. Uh, I think that, you know, you, the, the BDRs are going to be a big part of making sure the machine runs and also coordination, persistence, getting people on the calendar and so on and so forth. But to answer your question, I think the counterpoint more and more is, and just thinking about this, you know, we don't have to overcomplicate it, but let's say you're a really busy CMO that's getting pitched by ad tech companies and, and agencies all day. Who are you more likely to respond to, the creative director or a BDR that just got out of college, right? Like the creative director reaches out to you and says, we've got all these commonalities. I'm in your backyard. We went to the same college. We've worked with accounts just like yours. You know, I think it makes sense for us to talk versus a BDR that says, hey, look at this case study. Look at this new widget we have in the tech side. You know, look at this new product. Who are you more likely to take the call with, right? So 
with, with that in mind, the counterpoint is thinking of like a face of the campaign a lot of the time, or it doesn't have to be the, you know somebody that doesn't have any time to do this, but the more, the most senior person that's willing to get on a call and then conducting outreach on behalf of that person. And then that person can have, you know, whoever else join, they can do a baton pass. There's different ways to, you know, move the process along from there. But I just think that the barrier to entry has gotten high enough that we have to rethink things a little bit and get a little, little craftier sometimes. That is unless you have, I don't know, the, the, the newest AI platform that's so cool at face value that it doesn't matter. But that's, that's you know, not, not too many of us or something. Yeah. I think that takes us back to the rubric you mentioned on yesterday's episode. And, and that was this idea that, or maybe it was today's, the idea that you're competing with other items in someone's inbox. Again, this idea of SERPs. To take us back to that, the idea for Google is that the highest quality content wins. You can't, well, you can still, but it's pretty black hat, right? To be able to gain Google. And they, they figured it out pretty quick and Anybody that knows the Penguin release would tell you much of the Black Hat stuff was killed back then. But it really does say that it's it's about that competition in the inbox. And if you're thinking about the person that's actually sending the email, again, this idea of understanding who else, what else the context is for the person. But if it's coming from, let's say, the CMO or the, you know, the, the head of sales, it's probably going to be more impactful than, you know, Susie, the SDR, ultimately. So it's another factor included in there. What are some of the other things you would recommend to folks to think about in terms of winning the SERP in the inbox you could recommend to folks now? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is having enough personalization in the email so that you're you're mixing things up and, and also that nobody's getting mad at you, right? So, or not nobody, but most people are not getting mad at you for reaching out to them because you've done your research. I mean, I think a lot of the times, you know, we've been told this, this thing over and over again, that like, whatever X hours of research are done by buyers before they ever get on a sales call and all that. And some of that may be true, but I think what's taken for granted and Robert Rose has observed this pretty well. I think I've heard it for him to give him credit is that a lot of the times those buyers don't enjoy that process. It's not fun to be sifting through articles all day. It's not like they're, they're allergic to talking to salespeople as much as we think they are, especially now with just how hard it is to navigate all the solutions out there. But at the same time, people don't want to feel like they're on a list. You know, they, they want to feel like you put in at least some bare, you know, minimum amount of time. So I think the good news is the bar is low, you know, emails where we go to make plans and do business. So that really works well. Uh, and beyond that, you know, there's a lot of like technical stuff with deliverability that we could, we could get into, but I think that's, that's all Googleable. I think the more important thing is to think about, you know, what, what are they not going to be mad at? make it about them and, and, and sort of think about de-risking your conversation more than, than anything else to get more specific. A lot of the times this is, is taking the copy out of marketing land. You know, it's not, it's not the same tone as a marketing email at all. It's completely different. A lot of the times it's not pretty. The text is clunky. Sometimes we go pretty formal with it and that can work. There's not one way to do it. It's, it's, you know, a creative, it's a creative endeavor, but, it's taking things in a much more personal way. I think that a lot of the times, like if you wouldn't send it to somebody that you met, you know, at a cocktail event or networking thing, don't send it to somebody that you've, you've never talked to before. So there's a, hopefully a few, a few tidbits in there. Yeah. Well, that's great. Dan. So, Hey, congrats on the book. When is it getting published? 
Monday, June 13th, uh, it'll be available. And uh, I can I can plug a link for now. It'll be on Amazon. Hopefully that'll, that'll get linked up. Um, also, all the resources and just like a handy link to it if you're driving or something. It's just saleschema.com slash rsas as in relationship sales.com. As in relationship sales at scale. So saleschema.com slash rsas. Yeah. Or look to the show notes, folks. So, Dan, I've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. And I have to say, I think I've learned quite a bit. I love the idea of your inbox as a SERP. You got to you gotta make sure you trade that, mark that one, Dan. Otherwise, I'm going to steal it from you. Yeah, that's for the second edition. Yeah, I know that's a good point. I appreciate all, all the great questions. We appreciate your time. Okay, that wraps up this episode of the Revenue Generator Podcast. Thanks to Dan Englander, founder and CEO at Sales Schema for joining us. If you would like to contact Dan or learn more about his book, you can look for a LinkedIn profile in our show notes, or you can contact him on Twitter, where his handle is at Dan's Place, or visit his company website at saleschema.com. That's saleschema, S-C-H-E-M-A.com. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head on over to revgenpod.com, where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter, apply to be a speaker on the Revenue Generator podcast, or you can even share your revenue generation questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is at RevGenPod on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can contact me directly. My handle is Market Advocate. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a daily stream of RevGen strategies in your podcast feed, we're going to publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed on the next business day. Okay, that's all for today. But until next time, keep cranking because the revenue isn't going to generate itself.